Well, as you've been told, it is our annual question and answer weekend, chance for you to ask questions about the Bible, about the Christian life, about application of the scriptures, about something that's plagued you that's related somehow to Christianity. We have three microphones running around the auditorium, so it's a free-for-all, it's unscripted, and if you have a sincere question, we want to answer it. So flag down one of the pastors, one of the people with microphones. Yeah, we've got three pastors here with microphones, and we will jump right into it and see where this takes us. You never know. Good morning, Pastor Mike. Good morning. Uh, first, I want to say how blessed we are to have you and how much we appreciate you. As Thank you. Very kind of you. So I've been around here a long time, and I've never heard this subject discussed, and I'm curious. Um, how do Christians deal with birth control and artificial insemination? Right. Yeah, um, that is a... Uh, a new question in church history, right? Uh, because for generations, pastors uh, didn't get that question asked. Um, we, we don't want to abort a, a fascia um, product of any form of family planning or birth control. Um, we don't want to uh, create... Um, human life and then destroy some of that life to try and accomplish the pregnancy that we want. Um, There are so many issues of taking one step away from what is uh, part of the natural process of bearing children that every step away from that natural process complicates the matter. Um, Actually, we have a task force among our pastors right now, a subset of them working on uh, Kind of rethinking even the traditional pill that uh, has three methods of preventing pregnancy, which usually is preventing, they say, ovulation, thickening of the uterine wall so that there's no implantation and uh, such chemical response that, that becomes a spermicide in part. I mean, that's an oversimplification. But uh, if the pill is taken appropriately, uh, you still have a, whatever the percentage is, 4 to 7% failure rate, which then the logic is, and we have to dig deeper in this as it's becoming an increasing discussion among Christians. Uh, it was always considered, you take the pill, it's, it's clearly going to prevent uh, conception because it's preventing ovulation. Well, sometimes, obviously, it does not. And if there are three ways in which they say that this takes place, well, then uh, what, what happens if, uh, if that's assuming all three of these fail? Sperm does not get killed in the process. The uterine wall does not reject the implantation, and, the, and, and ovulation clearly takes place. Well, what if ovulation takes place uh, and uh, conception takes place, but implantation doesn't take place? Well, then the pill becomes an abortive fascia means of, of reproduction. Um, so we're digging deeper into that because that, that was not, uh, I would say, standard pastoral theology throughout the modern era. Uh, we know the pill comes with a lot of other complications, and many people have trouble with that. That's kind of been the, the go-to, because we're not Catholics, and Catholics have a, a different view on, on this, and yet it seems that Protestants may, in time, conservative evangelical Protestants, uh, start finding more correspondence with uh, Catholics. Catholics, in part, have a problem with their theology and, and their 
their, their, their uh, magisterium, their, their doctrinal position on this because part of their logic in the way that they state that there should be no uh, interference with the process of natural conception is that um, uh, the, the logic and argument is about function. And, and to, to me, uh, just like Jesus gave up the function of his reproductive organs for the sake of his ministry, which is unique, but then he says to his followers, you should do the same if you're able to. And of course, Paul exalts singleness. Well, that's a, that's a foregoing of the function of, of male genitalia in that sense. And, and all of that's fine because there's a higher purpose for the sake of the kingdom. And that's what Paul's advocating. Uh, same can be true for having children. At some point, you can say, for the sake of other compelling godly reasons, we're going to limit the number of children we have. How you limit it becomes the issue in, in, uh, you know, re- in, in reproduction, right? Uh, so in, in trying to prevent it, family planning. Uh, so those are two different things, obviously. IVF and, and, and in vitro and all the things that we're trying to do, surrogate parenting, all of that is um, uh, trying to have children. And I do think there's a desperation in trying to have children that goes back to the book of Genesis where anything and everything is tried, including, you know, here's my maidservant, have, have, a, have a baby with her. Um, so, there, yeah, I just think we need to be careful about the, the desperation that will leave, lead us to a couple of, of, of levels removed from natural reproduction that usually ethically complicate things uh, and... There are lots of questions involved. It depends on what we're talking about. Uh, and, and IVF, you know, th- there's issues of uh, how many embryos are you going to create? How many are you going to implant? What are you going to do with the others? And, of course, we have people in our church, you know, the snowflake adoption where they take pre-frozen embryos from other people and adopt. So th- there, there's, there's some give and take in this in that sometimes we have uh, a good outcome, but the world doesn't care about any of that. They're just trying to have children and, you know, they will create as many embryos as possible and, and you know, freeze and get rid of others if they don't, if they get what they want, which is a baby. So, of course, we would say anything post-conception, here's the reason why. If you don't, if you don't assume, which scientifically we must assume, that life begins, human life begins at conception. Of all the pieces, all the, you know, everything is that the design is there, the conception is there. If you don't assume that life begins at that point and is worthy of protection, uh, then you have to define it at some other point by performance or by function. And that just is a, that is a horrible place to be. Even as the Supreme Court back. Roe v. Wade in the day, you know, started to create this trimester thinking was all based on arbitrary numbers. Uh, and, and, you know, people say, well, is there viability outside of, of the mother? Uh, you know, would there be viability of, of, of this preborn life? There's a million arguments that if you drive them to the logical extreme, they don't work. Uh, any baby, even that's three months old, is not viable unless there's intervention from, from human beings. So, um, yeah, I would just say, and, and you, you got me with a really deep question out of the gate. Obviously, it's got me stumbling and bumbling here a bit. But, but I would say you need to, def- I would recommend this. If you're part of our church, highly committed participant here, I would seek pastoral counsel before you go down the pathway of doing anything to try and have a baby that stretches beyond, um, you know, when you go to your fertility doctor and he has all of these plans, it would be smart for you to have some discussion with our, our, our pastoral staff, because there's a whole ethical range of issues, and every process has different problems. So, um, 
And that's been going on since the technology began. Hasn't been an issue in the church in the past. Children are a blessing from God. The issue to prevent them, the issue to have them, both of them, when we start getting into technology, can create a lot of ethical problems. So thanks for that hard question that we started with. <laughs> Maybe that's the reason you've never heard it discussed. But there's, there's, more, there's more on that. But anyway, yeah. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. Thank you for this. And okay. here's hopefully an easier question. Thank you. <laughs> but that's right. No, we want the hard questions too. It's just usually I warm up before we get to the right. hard ones. Very appropriate yeah. that okay. my biblical Greek instructor, Dr. Yes. Kelly, is yes. here asking. Yes. So it has to do with language. Okay. Now, um, I don't know why this has been on my mind, but maybe just every YouTube I see, it's been Tower of Babel this and blah, blah, that. And so I'm thinking, does Scripture reveal or have anything to say about what language in the new kingdom will be? I mean, I don't know why that question was on my mind. Yeah, yeah. No, that's been asked many times. Yeah, and that's, that's a good question. Um, and, and we don't know. We don't know. And, of course, Israel um, in its sanctified ethnocentricity, right, thinks about Hebrew as the eternal language. Uh, and, and since I didn't do as well in studying my Hebrew as I did my Greek, I'm hoping that's not the case, but uh, no. The point, of course, is whatever was pre-Babel uh, was not understood. After Babel, this was a miraculous event to scatter the people, uh, just like took place in a microcosm in Jerusalem when the church was gathering, when they were supposed to scatter, scatter persecution, scattered the church in the book of Acts, as we've studied. And so it is that God says, I'm going to do this by confusing language, which is very effective. Uh, so what was it pre and what is it post? What is it at the end? I don't know. Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't surprise me if we had, uh, you know, multilingual realities, because we certainly continue with the ethnic distinctions. Uh, there's, there won't be prejudice. There won't be, you know, um, issues of, of envy or, or class or caste uh, concerns in the kingdom. But perhaps we'll have uh, various languages that we can only speculate. So I don't know. Yeah. Probably not English. I, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, where are we? In the back, wherever we are. I can't see it, but just go ahead. Is it here? Yes. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. Um, there's a, a well-known story of William Carey when he wanted to be a missionary to India a couple of centuries ago. And he was standing before the mission board, and he was stating his desire to go be a missionary. And one of the gentlemen said to him, young man, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help. Um, and, well, we know how that story turned out. But anyway, uh, we know that God has invited us into uh, the salvation uh, issue in praying for, uh, well, unbelievers, but I'll pray for the believers, reaching the unbelievers. Mm -hmm. And we can certainly pray for the unbelievers' salvation. But my question is this, as we're getting into... Ephesians and predestination in our men's Bible study. Uh, how does that kind of play out God's sovereignty from before the foundation of the world, including people in the kingdom and our prayers? And I say that, uh, that I don't have a problem with praying because God told us that's all I need to know. But just in your way of thinking, how have you worked out that whole process of trying to put those two together maybe in an encouraging way to keep us um, just well encouraged about, about continuing to pray, even though God did it a long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, just a thought. No, I, I understand it. In that Northamptonshire meeting where the young William Carey uh, responded by just going and doing it, he did it in obedience to the command to reach people with the gospel. And I would say, just like you said, I don't have a problem with prayer, which we're all, and God is very happy to hear, uh, <laughs> We need to continue to do what God told us to do. 
And here's what he said, ask and you will receive, right? The reality of an effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishing much is the way that that's laid out to us as an imperative and an instruction, okay? We then, right, in our theology say, well, wait a minute, now God is a God, even if you don't have a high view of God's sovereignty, at least you'd say, well, God knows everything. God knows what's going to happen. Uh, I, I go beyond that, as you should. We look at uh, Ephesians, talk about Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. God works everything after the counsel of his will. So we understand God has a plan, and he's decreed a plan, and it's working that plan out. And then you think, well, okay, how can that be if I can choose what I have for lunch today? Or in this case, why would I ask God to do something if he's already mapped this out? And that's just a standard question that is always asked. And I always would say this, is that God not only, uh, not only decrees and appoints the, the ends of the matter, like, would Christ be crucified on Passover, right, in, in, in AD 33, right? Would that happen? You say, well, I hope so. God just kind of was hoping it would happen. No, right? According to the predetermined plan of God, that happened. Yeah, but those guys made those decisions, right? The Sanhedrin met. They made those decisions. Were they robots? Are we fatalists? No, they made free decisions. But those free decisions, right, all a part of God's plan. God was working out a plan. How those two work together, right, is the age-old question of my human responsibility and decision-making, volitional choices, and God's predetermined sovereign plan. And those are laid side by side in Scripture, as J.I. Packer says in his book, Sovereignty, Evangelism and Sovereignty of God. And those are, are, are not, we don't blush at saying, this is how God says this works. Now, the question is, when, when prayer, if I'm supposed to ask and receive, if God is a God who says, ask me and I'll respond, uh, then I got to ask, well, how does this work if I'm thinking with my theological hat on that, that I'm asking for things that He's, he's already determined, or he's already decreed, or he's already working out. Well, it's just like every other decision of my life. The decisions of my life that I'm making uh, are, are real decisions. Those real decisions I have to recognize, they're not just God looking forward to see what would happen, but God is working through the circumstances to accomplish his will. Let me put it this way. To, to pray, I'm supposed to approach this as, ask God, and God is going to respond. Okay, that's how this is presented to me. Well, there's a lot of examples where God is asked for something and, and it doesn't happen, and it's including godly people like Paul praying for the thorn in the flesh to go away, and it doesn't go away. And you start to think, well, okay, how does this work then? Very selectively, it seems that if you ask, then God responds, right? If you ask according to his will, okay, well, there's the big caveat. If it's not his will, it's not going to happen, then why am I asking? Well, here's what I learned about prayer in Scripture. I'm not only called to ask, Matthew chapter 6, I am called to, uh, James chapter 4, I'm called to examine my motives. Right? If I'm not getting, I need to look at my motives. You ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. You might spend it on your pleasures. That's James chapter 4. So if I'm supposed to pray, I'm supposed to pray, and then I'm supposed to say, well, wait a minute, why am I praying? So I'm supposed to examine my motives. So God has ordained not only the ends, but the means, and the means is prayer, but it's prayer in light of my motives. And then I'm also told, two chapters earlier in that book, uh, three chapters earlier, chapter 1, I'm told to ask for wisdom and God will give it. Okay, Paul's analogy, or the, not analogy, the example of Paul asking for something to go away. He's sick. He wants it to be fixed. He prays for God to fix this illness. It, it doesn't happen. He asks three times. He, I'm sure, examines his motives. That's the godly thing to do. He asks, I'm sure, for wisdom because that's the godly appointed means. It's godly praying, asking motives, wisdom. And in all of that, then he concludes this. It's God's will for me to be sick. And I need to look for how wisdom would appoint this, this roadblock for my personal desire to, to grow my ministry, which, of course, it did. Humility, God's grace is sufficient, I'll glory, therefore, in my weakness, which is another way to say, I'll glory in God not answering this prayer. So what is that? This is God's will that Paul is sick. 
Right? This is God's decreed will. His prayer is not going to change that. But what prayer did is it changed Paul by having him question his motives, by having him seek wisdom, and coming to a place where God now did what he wanted to do in Paul. And, and so I, I guess the, that's the longer answer to the short, pithy answer, is that oftentimes prayer changes me to pray differently, changes me in terms of character, changes me in terms of looking at circumstances, and, and even aligning myself with God. Right? God is a God who's looking at the world to, to quote uh, Genesis 6, grieved in his heart over the sin. I'm praying for sinners to be saved, and I'm grieving like Jesus did in Matthew 9. Like sheep without a shepherd, look at them. They go on and on. His heart is breaking. The Greek word spelanchthon. He feels it in his gut. And so here is a sense of me being more godly when I pray for lost people that still continue and persist in their ungodliness. So prayer becomes an avenue through which I'm... I'm I'm walking in the, in, in the path of God's counsel and will. Now, if you got a better answer th- than that, as Don Carson says in his book on the topic, uh, well, then you just got to make sure you're including all the biblical data. And that's why I, good, I think good theologians have always said, here's what we do with this. We have an antinomy, that's how it's described, and that's, good, that's not a paradox, but an antinomy. These are two seemingly contradictory truths that parallel in Scripture which is we are making decisions, making decisions about how to pray, making decisions about what to have for lunch. God is a God who works everything after the counsel of his will. My freedom and my choices, in terms of my choices, are not completely free because I'm certainly a fallen person and I have limitations. I can't choose when to be born. I can't choose to touch the moon today. Lots of things that limit my, my choices. But within that function of what it is to live as a human being with volition, right, it all is going to work according to God's plan. Whether that's the Sanhedrin uh, or the Romans beating Jesus and whipping him and nailing him to a cross, which they're fully culpable and responsible for. That's the fullness of their freedom to choose those things, but also God working out his plan. And that's the mastery of a God who's got a bigger you know, toolbox than we do. And when you say, oh, I don't like that, I want to understand his ways, I would just go back to Isaiah. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. And oh, I don't like the mystery. I want to understand everything. Okay, well, yeah, who's God's counselor? Who's ever been his counselor? You're not going to be, you're not going to be the first one. So we have to deal with this. And if you say, well, that's why I don't like Christianity. You want to take Christianity and God and theism and move that off the table, I guarantee you, whatever you bring in next, naturalism, or you have all kinds of problems in trying to reconcile things that fit nicely into your mind. And, and so it is included with what I believe is reality. And the reality is that there is a God. He's created us, and he is a God who is fully in charge. He is not deity if he's not fully in charge and sovereign. So we continue to pray, and we pray, asking earnestly. We pray without losing heart. We pray without losing heart doesn't mean I keep praying even if God says no. Sometimes I'm questioning my motives. I'm seeking wisdom, and God ends up changing me or aligning my broken heart with his or my joy with his. God changes us in our praying. But here's the deal. Even if you have the theological struggle because you're such a scholar with your theological hat on all the time, which I'm not saying you, but if that's where you're here, I'm just saying, hey, God said to do it, and you could not pray too much. So keep praying. And you pray, and you seek, and you understand, just like you would ask a person to do something for you at work as you get sweaty palms, and you ask, I I would like you to do this, do this extra project, work overtime, take this promotion, do this business trip, and you're concerned how they're going to respond. Well, you live out your life in real time. Live it out. Live it out in real time, even in your prayer life. Ask God. Ask wholeheartedly. Ask sincerely. uh, And watch what God does, always checking your motives and asking for wisdom. That's a long-winded answer, sorry, but hopefully that helps. Good morning, Pastor Mike. Good morning. 
I do have sweaty palms. Okay, just so you know, asking okay. the question. Okay, all right. When everybody's on the bus, you said the rapture. Yeah, yeah. What happens? I have a lot of friends and family that don't know the Lord. Yeah. Can you expound upon what's going to happen after that? Yeah, well... If I understand the Bible correctly, there's going to be the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, something the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, Matthew 24, greatest tribulation ever on the earth, never has been or never will be, and that terrible time is going to take place. Starting in Revelation 6, there's going to be a series of things that God is doing to express his wrath on the earth. So it's going to be a terrible time. Now you say you're concerned about your friends and family. Uh, God is concerned about everyone that you do and do not know. So... I know we feel personal on a personal affront to think, well, if we get raptured and taken out of this thing today, even if you're not, you know, a, a premillennial, uh, you know, pre-tribulational guy, you still think at some point the clock's going to run out and things are going to be over, historic pre-mill, whatever you are, uh, Christ's going to come back. And at that particular point, right, uh, opportunities cease. And I say that for those that have not responded to the gospel. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, they chose to believe the lie. And therefore, those that have been exposed to the gospel, at least, I can make this case, uh, we don't hold out hope for them in this, in this next period of time. But there's lots of salvation in the tribulation. Lots of salvation, I think, that corresponds to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, which is that there's going to be the gospel that goes out all over the world. I think every person is going to hear, and I think there's going to be, as it says in the book of Revelation, a kind of exponential evangelistic effort, particularly to those who have not heard the gospel in that generation, and uh, you're going to have a lot of people say from every tongue, tribe, and nation, as it says in the book of Revelation. Uh, and, of course, it starts with the 144,000 Jews in Revelation chapter 7, and they're doing God's work, servant work. They're called the servants of the Lord. They're special. They're vocal. They go all over the planet, or at least they're active in reaching all kinds of people. So there is salvation, but I wouldn't say, well, if, you know, my loved one who's heard the gospel from me endlessly and I leave the planet tomorrow, and this stuff is actually going to happen in Revelation 6 through 19 uh, for seven years. I, 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 I'm sure that they'll get it round two, because this will be a big emphasis that they'll say, oh, everything my crazy brother said is true. Um, I, 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 I have a ton of hope. I think the concern we should have is that now the door of opportunity is open. That's the urgency of the present age of evangelistic mission and uh, if you say, well, that's not right, I'm bummed out about the people that I love aren't going to be there. Well, God has an intimate relationship with every person he's created. And I just want to say you drive past a lot of people on the way to church that are lost and you go and you whistle while you go to church. And I'm just saying, it's interesting how we're just concerned about the people I know, people that I share some genetic material with. And I want to expand my heart a little bit and be like Jesus in Matthew 9, because I already quoted the passage, sitting on a hill going, look at the masses of people. And I'm not saying you can't have your favorites among God's created beings. Of course you can. But I am saying it doesn't mean, like, if I just had my whole family saved, then let's go, right? Because every other person in the auditorium doesn't have all their family saved. So it's, it's, they're going to be the lost people. And that's a reality we need to gra grapple with. And all the way back to the book of or Genesis, uh, you know, won't the judge of all the earth do right? God's going to do right, and no one's going to be shaking their fist at God saying, you're doing stuff that people don't deserve as the angels say, as they pour out the bowls in the end of the book of Revelation, they deserve it. And I think it, when they go to the great white throne judgment in, in Revelation 20, no one's going like, like to no shake their fist at God. Like Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? He's not there going, I don't deserve to be here. This is terrible. It's not right. 
He's in agony, the Bible says. But then he says, can you send someone to tell my brothers so they don't come here? His, his concern isn't that this is unjust that I'm here. I think there'll be crystal clarity for the lost after this life is over. Um, they don't get it in the tribulational period because they're shaking their fist at God in, in Revelation 6 saying, you know, why are you doing this to us? Uh, and yet they recognize it's the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb has come. So, yeah, that's what's going to happen, and it's a sad fact, but that should just redouble our efforts in evangelism. And it's part of why in the Northamptonshire pastors meeting when William Carey, just to quote this historic story, um, he cared about the lost that he didn't know. And I think a lot of the smug old pastors in that meeting that said, if the Lord wants the heathen reach, he's going to reach him without you. I think there's a big problem of an uncaring lack of, of spelanchthon, a lack of compassion for people that are lost. And if we had that raised and elevated in our church, I guarantee you this, we have more people going into ministry. We have more people being sent out to plant churches. We have more people going to foreign mission fields trying to reach people for the gospel. So we need that. And I think our forefathers had it a lot more than we do, but all of our technology, all of our creature comforts, all the things that we've got that make us really comfortable, right, have lessened our concern for the lost. And now all we're concerned about is just a few people that we know. And I'm saying, well, that's a good place to start, but we need that concern for everyone you pass on the streets. Uh, Okay, yeah, that's good. Yes, in the back. Um, My question's out of Job, and I hope it's an easy answer. No, it's all right. I shouldn't have said what I said. Yeah. Um. Job, um, Satan was allowed to touch Job and take all his possessions, his children, and his health. Yet they left his wife. And I'm wondering, what does that say about his wife? And um, that's the first part of my question. Well, but you do know the story. Let me interject in the first part of your question. When she says to him, when he holds his integrity, you should just curse God and die. I realize that. So I think we know why. You know, if, if Satan is tor- torturing Job, he leaves his wife because... I thought a man he, might answer that question like that. He's no, I wasn't sure. Well, it, I don't have... I could, be, I, don't, I could be a woman and answer it that way because that's how the text reads. She's yes. not a blessing to him. Okay. Neither are his three male friends. He right. says, miserable comforters are you all. So this is an equal gender slam. Okay. They're all <laughs> a curse to him. Okay. Okay. And then the second question is, in the second part of his life... God blessed him and had 10 more kids. Same wife? Yeah. <laughs> but he had a great man cave in the big house there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's hope for wives that are bitter. Um, there's no indication that it's a new wife, so I'd assume it's the same wife. The wife doesn't have a lot of airplay other than at the beginning when she is not very helpful. Yeah, where's the mic? In the back. Kind of expanding on time, specifically end times, but God obviously created the universe, which would, I assume, means he created time. So expanding on it a little bit in your words, but also specifically, does that mean that when we all pass at the same time, even like so Abraham Lincoln died hundreds of years ago, Mm -hmm. I'm going to die hopefully Let's say 50, 60 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that we wake up during the rapture at the same exact time, meaning that we just gain the knowledge of prior history? No. But, but that is a popular theory, but popular is not the majority theory because the majority understands the Scripture pretty clearly that to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, is to be present with the Lord. Um, and it's not... The, the doctrine of soul sleep is not 
biblically grounded. So, yeah, time, I don't want us to think just because I die, time no longer exists. Even though I'm open to say my reality is very altered when I'm apart from the body. But I'm designed to be enmeshed in the body, and I will be reconnected with the body at the resurrection. So I do think that intermediate time that Paul calls the nakedness, I don't want to be naked. My temporal house is going to be destroyed. That's my body. I long for my eternal dwelling that's made from God, which is his new body, um, based on the old body and from the material of the old body, whatever's left of it. But that nakedness period, we call it the, the, uh, uh, the, the intermediate state. There is some question about what that's like, but to go, go to the place where you go, which I've heard many times, isn't it just then we don't have a sense of time, I'm going to say no. And I say no with biblical authority because in the book of Revelation, during the period of time when the people that are slain during the tribulation are under the altar, they're crying out to God, right? How long is this going to continue? So they have a sense of time as disembodied spirits. And so I know that time, and I would say even for angels, I think time is a reality, although I understand time and space, uh, you know, go together, right? We understand something about the, the, the time, which is freaky the more you study time. Time is a strange concept, but, um, and God is beyond that and, that, and that is unique. God is what we call transcendent in that there's something so ontologically different about the nature of God. It, he's hard to understand, but I think angelic beings and human beings, particularly enmeshed in physical material, certainly have an experience with time that's very unique, and yet I do think angels and disembodied spirits have a sense of time based on biblical example in Scripture. But no, I don't think when I die, it's like immediately I'm waking up at the time of the rapture. Uh, I I know the euphemism of sleep makes it seem that way because a body in repose or a body in the grave looks like they're sleeping or whatever, but that's not the reality because death is defined as the spirit leaving the body. And the spirit, then I got to look at in Scripture, how does that function? Does that function with a sense of time? And the answer in Scripture is yes. So I will have a sense of time, and I will even perhaps with those that were slain in the tribulation say, how long, O Lord, till this is done? Let's get on with the kingdom, which I think we should all have an impulse to want. Good question. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so were people in the Old Testament, were they born of the Spirit? And also, how does somebody get the Spirit to enter into them to become born again? Yeah, well... You've got to understand it is a spatial analogy. Okay, if I said the spirit is in me, that's an, it's an analogous way to talk about the closeness of a relationship. Because like, what part is he in? If you say, well, all parts. Well, then if I really get really big and portly, will I have more of the spirit in me? Right? Right? And well, I feel bad for those short people because they don't have that much spirit. Right? That's not the reality. It's, it, it's a sense of, even as Jesus said, the spirit is with you, but then he'll be in you. The distinction of the preposition moving from with to in is speaking about something that is, is intimate, something that is, is close, uh, which again is relational. You can say, I've grown really close to this friend of mine, right? We do a lot together. We're close now. Well, close is a spatial analogy, right? You're saying relationally kind of copacetic on the same page, harmonious. So you and the spirit are supposed to be so harmonious that it can be analogized with you're just so close now, close that he's in you. The, the, the reason you sit here today as a Christian and that you may be genuinely indwelt by the Spirit, as the Bible uses that analogous word, and not feel all that, is because you're still 
left with this unredeemed body that has, as Peter said, its passions and desires waging war against your soul. So your soul is embattled, your soul is under attack, and your soul now is supposed to be, has a new roommate. Well, a lot of times it feels like the odd couple, like I, I got a roommate wants me to pick up all the time and I want to leave my laundry on the floor. It's a hard relationship. That's why Galatians says the spirit and the flesh, they battle each other. And my spirit even can't do what it wants uh, as the Spirit wants to have this joyful, harmonious, close relationship with me, close, harmonious relationship with me, because I'm struggling with my flesh. So if you think of it that way, okay, you, you think, okay, that's a relationship that can be distinguished from Old Testament saints, okay? The Old Testament saints, it's not unknown for the Spirit to be even described in Hebrew as being in them, uh, but not as a normal course of discussion. When when David sins, Psalm 32, he says, take not your spirit from me, right? It certainly harkens back to when Saul had the spirit removed from him as the king. So there is a sense in which even the spirit within someone is described of the artisans who built the furniture in the tabernacle. So I do know this, the spirit actively involved in people's lives in the Old Testament. But there was something unique, speaking of uh, Hebrews or uh, Ephesians chapter 1, by the time you get to verse 14, you have this picture of the Holy Spirit saying, now he's the seal and the promise and the guarantee of your inheritance. So there's something about the permanence of the harmonious connection with the third person of the Godhead that is supposed to convict me of sin and righteousness and judgment, be the comforter, the parakletos, strengthening me, and that should be something that keeps me moving in the direction, as it's put in Ezekiel, of, of walking and keeping his precepts, right? I will move them to keep my decrees, my, my, my ordinances, my laws. So that's an internal motivation that's as though it's my desire now, and that's how Paul describes it. The old man, mm, new man. So my life is so redone, we call it regeneration, which is really synonymous, at least with the concept of the spirit now is so harmonious and, and tight with me, tight is a spatial analogy, that I'm wanting to do the God stuff. So when we just throw out the question, and, and I get it because I use that language too, the Bible uses the language of the spirit in you, right? with those in the Old Testament, in some of them, in us though, if we're Christians, what does that mean? It doesn't mean he's filling you know, the, 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 your, your thoracic cavity, right? Uh, it, it means that the third person, the Godhead, has taken a special interest in you, so special that it's distinguished from either the fleeting uh, in and outs of the connection of the Old Testament spirit with person or um, something that would in any way make me think that he's not like completely about me as, as one of his own. Does that kind of help a little bit? There's more to it. Get him a microphone because you asked that question for a particular reason. Are you more concerned with the Old Testament distinction, how they were saved? Well, I, I believe that the definition of a Christian is yes. somebody, somebody who's born of the Spirit. Well, correct. No, so it, absolutely. We John. Have Jesus, he's talking to Nicodemus. Yeah. And he says to Nicodemus uh, that you need to be born of the Spirit. Right, right. And he says, you're a teacher of the law and you do not know these things. Right. And he like, kind of criticizes Nicodemus for not knowing that this is the way it's always been. Well, not the way it's always been, that you don't know these things because it was the promise of the new covenant that you'd be born by the Spirit and the Spirit would be placed within you and that you would be cleansed of your sin, cleansed with water. 
So the idea is not baptism, but it's the analogy of water cleaning something and, and the analogy of the Spirit being so tight with you that he's in you. So yes, he criticizes him not because that's the way it's always been. He criticizes him because he doesn't realize, as he says later, don't you know the times? Can't you distinguish and understand that the fulfillment of God's promises now in the new covenant age have come upon you, that the kingdom of God is here and with you? So I, I, the criticism is that he is a scholar of the Old Testament and should know that this was a promise that was coming. And if you look at all the promises of the new covenant about the change of the relationship of the spirit with the individual, it's always coming. It's coming. Now it's arrived. So it's, I don't think he's criticizing it because that's the way it's always been. Okay, but like, let's say Abraham. Abraham had faith, right? How did faith get from God to Abraham? Yeah, well, yeah, God doesn't... Without, without the spirit. The spirit, I, the spirit is active in creation from the beginning of creation. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the earth, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So the Spirit has been involved. The question is, what distinguishes Old Testament salvation from New Testament salvation in the, under the rubric or the heading of pneumatology, of the Spirit? And I'm going to say it's the way the description is of the Spirit's relationship with us, which is speaking to things like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, that there is a seal and a guarantee. There's like nine analogies in Scripture of how the Spirit relates to the New Testament believer. And they have shades in every one of them of a distinction, even though it's not absent in the Old Testament. So salvation, God can save Abraham by, as it says in Romans 4, by imputing to him righteousness when he has faith. The activity of faith in Abraham, I'm going to grant you, you're right. I believe that's generated in the gift of the Spirit. Uh, but, but does that mean that he has the same description of how the Spirit functions in his life as we do? I think, there's yes. a, I think there's a lot more parallels, but, I don't, but you, you, you can't say that if you look at the promises of Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36 and 34. You're going to find there is a distinction between the Spirit's... And, so, you, so what you're saying is God didn't start regenerating people until Pentecost. I'm going to say that's the terminology... But again, I just think the flaw in what you've said is that you're looking at Jesus telling Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law and you don't know this. When you say that, knowing is, is, is an indicative ongoing reality, but it's not about the fact that this is the way it's always been. He should know that the new covenant promises was analogized by the spirit indwelling and water cleansing you from transgression. Those are the things he should have known, and everyone was looking forward to that. The Old Testament saints were looking for when is the time of that new covenant reality? And I do think there is a distinction there. Yeah, yeah. so I'm going to say the spirit regeneration is New Testament language. It's new covenant language. Even though the spirit's active, involved, granting faith, I agree with all that. I've lectured on the use or the functions of the spirit in the Old Testament, and I might recommend that. And if we're disagreeing on that, that's fine. We're brothers. We can disagree on this. But um, at least listen to my lecture. You'll find it on pastormike.com on the activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And, and what I'm doing to most people in the room is saying there's way more correspondence than you would think. But to say it's identical correspondence, I'm going to go, no, I'm stuck with the promise of the new covenant being distinct, but not distinct in the sense that there's no correspondence. There's lots of correspondence. There's more continuity than we think. I agree with that. Yeah. All right. Hi. Hi. Um, so my question is about female pastors. Um, so we were going to a, a church for a while that had a female pastor. And um, I was wondering your view on that. 
based on some of the New Testament, um, but also how that correlates today. I guess my question is, there's so many, is it like the, the name pastor? Because there's so many authors and people speaking on social media, women. Um, or is it like, uh, I guess, just the distinctions there about female pastors? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question, and uh, here's what you make, need to make the distinction, because the arguments being made by a lot of high-profile people are that the function of pastoring, which is a, a word from an agrarian society, which means to shepherd, right, because that is obviously seen in both men and women and can be identified as a, as a, a, a function of spiritual care, that because men and women can do that, well, then, of course, women can be pastors. It's like asking this question, uh, Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, the word shepherd is pastor, okay? So the Lord is my pastor. If I ask, is, is God the Father a pastor, right? If you said, yes, I'm like, well, when is he going to preach, right? Does, does he go to the board meetings, right? He, he doesn't, right? Because he's not a pastor if you're talking about how the word pastor is used for the office within the church. And there's where you need to make the distinction because the guys that are out there on, on Twitter it's all about conflating that. And once you conflate that, you've lost it. Every mother I know shepherds her children. I get it, right? Books are written, shepherding a child's heart. Shepherding is, is, is a great word. It's a great analogy. But if I ask the question, who are the poimen, episkopos, presbyteros for the church, and who's qualified to do that? And those three Greek words that translate poimen, the word shepherd, Episcopos, overseer, presbyteros, elder, those are all used synonymously of the, of, the, of the ruling class, if you want to call it that, of the church. Uh, Episcopos certainly gives us that sense of like a senator. They're, they're, they're making decisions for the congregation. I'm going to say, of course, that's gender specific. Only men are qualified to do that because that's what the requirements are for the office of pastor. Now, does that mean women don't teach, women don't shepherd, women don't serve, women don't minister? Of course not. Even because the word diakonos, the word that is used for the, the deacons, right, is used for females and for males in the New Testament. And they're doing a lot of ministry work. We have women on our staff, not that that's an argument about what God thinks, but we have that because we see in Scripture the clarity of the important roles of women in ministry. So do we believe in women in ministry? Absolutely we do. Uh, do we believe that women can be on the, uh, the Episcopal appointment of Presbyteros ruling office of the church? The answer is no. And, and that's just because that's what God says, and he roots that all in creation. Just like there are no men mothers, right? And, and I know that that's a controversial statement these days, but uh, there are no men mothers. And, and, and I don't care what the world says, it, there, there aren't any. And, and well, that's exclusive. It is exclusive. It is, right? Uh, so it, it is, is the ultimate decision-making group of people who make decisions for a local body that are called overseers, the old, old translation, bishops, elders, or pastors, all the same group. Uh, can, can you have women on that too? We want equal representation. Well, this isn't a democracy, and you didn't write the Constitution, and this is God's thing, and he said men should lead in that. And, and here's what I often say jokingly, half-jokingly, if, if it weren't exclusively directed for men, we would have no men on that team. Because it just that's the problem of sin. We don't, we don't want that responsibility. Certainly for, you know, 
the headaches that come with it and the pay or whatever. It's just like that's women are more spiritually attuned, generally speaking. I can say that from years of experience. Uh, you call a, a Bible study for women, you get twice as many as you will for men. There's just a lot of reasons to be like, well, just let's just let the women lead this thing. And, and uh, the, the bottom line is, though, God says no. Just like in the garden, right? Man should have stepped up and said, you're not eating that. That should not happen. He failed in his leadership position. God said, I'm going to redeem a bunch of people, change their heart, and dwell them with the Spirit in a special way in the new covenant. Men should lead this. And Paul says, that's the way it's always been. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I can't get around the fact that this is what the Bible says. And I'll die on that hill because that's what the Bible teaches. And we're not going to have any women in that class, that office of pastor in our church, as long as I'm alive uh, and have any say in it. Yeah. But we have women. We, the women who teach in our women's Bible study teach to more people every week than the men who teach in our men's Bible study. Because there's almost twice as many people that come to that. So, I mean, it's not a competition, so don't clap at that. But, um, but if it were a competition, we'd be down several points. But yeah, and, and by the way, I don't know. And, um, there is something about readjusting things the way God had designed in the garden that I hope is affirming both to men and to women. Um, and, and there's a lot of things we do here just to try and emphasize that, uh, you know, I, I hope it's a comforting thing. And, and if you're a feminist or whatever and thinking, oh, there should be women. I, I mean, I can't help you with that. I mean, I can maybe help you with that. We need some counseling, get you through some of that. But uh, I, I, I just think there's something that should resonate with regenerate men and women that this is, this is a good thing. Men need to step up and lead in the church. Men need to lead in the home. And with an epidemic of, of passive men, right, um, we got a problem. Nancy Percy's latest book. Speaking of, here's something, learning from a great scholar. Um, she's great. I mean, she studied with Francis Schaeffer at Labrie. Uh, her latest book, I think it's her latest one, is on uh, toxic uh, mass, what she call it? Does anyone know the title? Look it up. Masculinity, toxics in it. It's a play on words. Um, the Toxic War on Masculinity. It's a great book, and I think, you know, here, and again, we're learning from a very scholarly woman who knows her stuff, right? She was the one who really made Francis Schaeffer's theology accessible to people. Uh, brilliant. And she's making, a great, she's making a great statement about the toxic war on masculinity. We, and a lot of books are, 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 are starting to come out and help with that, because the pendulum's gone way too far. And I hope a lot of people are saying, this is nuts, I hope we're saying that about a lot of things. All right, next question before I get on a soapbox. Yeah, got one here. Got a microphone here. Yeah. Yeah, good morning, Pastor Mike. Morning. So um, my question is uh, kind of revolves around salvation, and specifically uh, Romans 9 is something that I've been wrestling with for a couple weeks here, so hoping I can get my question across clearly. Um, It's about God's sovereignty, so I'll just focus on verse 18, and then... I guess what I've been wrestling with is also chapter 10, and I'll kind of touch on that. So 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens uh, whomever he wills, right? So he's talking about Pharaoh, how he hardens Pharaoh's heart previously for the purpose of, you know, achieving his plan, right? Um, But then Romans chapter 10, verse 9, you know, we know that, with regards to salvation, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Um, and so this has kind of just played a domino effect on some other parts of Scripture for me, like uh, 1 Corinthians 5, where it, right in the beginning talks, Paul talks about the man who's living an immoral life, saying you should cast this man out, hand him over to Satan. So I'm trying to understand then with regards to you know, salvation, um, does God you know, play a part in hardening people's heart that cannot be saved and then with the example, like in 1 Corinthians 5, like, why would they cast that man out instead of work on him? And I'm over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that, he, that his soul might be saved. In other words, right. there's always a, a positive objective in the human call to do good, either ecclesiastically in the church, which is a church discipline issue there in 1 Corinthians 5, or in evangelism. We want everyone to get saved, right? So that's our... Our, our concern. And then you look at passages about, like in Exodus, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, then it's used as an example in Romans 9, and you're like, what's going on here? Uh, well, the key is the word that you used in the verse that you quoted, which I think is the key, and that is, it's mercy. Mercy is what is given to people that are doing wrong, and they don't get what they deserve. And so the default in Romans, by the time we get to chapter 10, it should be well established that the problem is sin, that is willfully engaged in, in chapter 3, you get a long list of Old Testament quotes. Look at all the sin. What is sin? Right? Sin is something that deserves death. Sin deserves punishment. He goes through this in, in dealing with the, the miracle of imputation, chapter 4. He talks about uh, the law of sin and death, right? chapter 6, chapter 8. The idea of us thinking, why doesn't God... Or Here's how we see that verse. Why does God... like? harden this person's heart, and why does he then grant this person the gift? And and part of that answer is the misreading of the sense that people are neutral. That's a part of the answer. The bigger problem for American Christians is, is understanding who God is, right? We're thinking, how dare he? And as C.S. Lewis put it, we're putting God in the dock, in the witness box, saying, now we gotta, we got to question you about this, as Job did. And if you ask Job, should we be approaching God's justice that way? Like, why are you not saving everyone? Right? Why aren't you giving mercy to everyone? It's like saying, why don't you marry everyone? Right? Why are you so selective about who you marry? Right? It's like, okay, here's the deal. There's something about you as a mini made in the image of God functioning in a way that allows you some sovereignty over your corner of the world, including, as I use in the book, I wrote a popular book on theodicy on how to understand the problem of suffering in light of God's justice, is, is um, I have a little piece of property in Laguna Hills. <laughs> I make it sound like it's an estate. It's a house and a track and a, a track of homes. But I got a, I got a rat problem because uh, I got a big hedge. And um, so I get rats. And that's not good because I live with two women don't like don't like them. Uh, but let's say I had a boy that did like them. Uh, and, and I, I decided to capture one of them, clean him up, give him his shots, feed him, bring him inside, and then let my son kind of play with him as he, as he does his homework. Um, that'd be my prerogative. Uh, but I choose to choose to kill most of them, uh, with poison (laughs) and traps. Um, but everyone would say, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to that church. That, that pastor kills some rats and loves other rats. You'd say, oh, they're rats. Because you as a human being would look at rats and go, oh, rats. Ugh, rats. Okay. God is a God who looks at humanity. And here is sin. 
2 Corinthians 5, hostility. Here are people that are an affront to his holiness, right? So all of them deserve to be condemned. God shows mercy to some, and he'll show mercy to whom he shows mercy. And, and that is his prerogative. So there's the one side of it, which is God gets to do what he wants to with his creation. Just like you're living here, do you have a car? You have a car? You have a home? You have air conditioning in your home? Okay, I can take you to another part of the world, and Erie and Jaya and, and Papua New Guinea, get a guy your age, and he got none of that. And he's sweating, and he's going out and hunting for hogs, and he, he's, you're sitting there comfortable, your, your shirt's got washed in a washer. How is that fair? And we start talking about fairness as though it's justice. Fairness is not justice, right? The justice of God was a, it would be that you would be cast into outer darkness because you're a sinner, and the guy in Erie and Jai would be cast into outer darkness because he's a sinner. But instead, God shows mercy even in the terms of what he does materially for you, right? Even if we were all born a thousand years ago, our lives would be radically different. So God does what he chooses to do. He sets appointed times, to quote Acts 17. He decides what he chooses to do with his material blessings. And all of that takes place. Now, here's the problem with even saying that in a hyper-envious culture. We can't handle that on a theoretical level. That's just, how could God do that? Everyone should be riding in a nice car. And as long as we have cars, that'd be great. But it'd be good if we had like Porsches and Ferraris. God should just do that for everybody. And, and the reality is, that's not how God operates. God is free to do with his gifts whatever he wants, which, which means if, if he wants to cripple you with a disease, fine, God can do whatever he wants. And, and yet, we don't want to give him that prerogative. Well, ask Job if it's a good idea to demand that God give you a certain kind of lifestyle. Right? Job's going to say no, because he learned from chapters 38 to 42, that's not how it operates, particularly in chapter 39. On. God is a God who chooses to do whatever he wants. Job never gets an answer to why is it like this. And we are basically saying the same thing when it comes to looking at, at Romans 9 and saying, why did you get to show mercy on who you? Now, the one complicating problem that I do have to address is hardening his heart. Because that's an active hardening of Pharaoh's heart. How, how did that work? Well, go back to the context, which I would hope, certainly the Jewish contingent of that church would know well the story. And that is that Pharaoh is described repeatedly as hardening his own heart. And then there are passages are alternately of God hardening his heart. God hardens his heart, right? He's already volitionally hardened his heart and continues to harden his heart. And God continues to double down on the hardness of his heart so that he can make a point, which is ultimately writing scripture. Because the, the punishment, the 10 plagues, established the miraculous signs that God then establishes a prophet named Moses to write the books of the Bible that we still read, we still memorize, we still meditate on, we still recite. This is God putting his Bible together, and he does it in part because he's got a hard-hearted guy who chooses to harden his heart. He goes, I'm going I'm to harden, I'm going to keep hardening his heart so we can get to this. I'm working a good through the, through the difficulty of, of, of a passage that we struggle with that God hardened his heart. I have no problem with the fact that God hardened his heart. God could harden all of our hearts. He's got the right to do it because he's God. That's the second tier issue we don't deal with very well as Americans because we've had a lot of things hand, handed to us on a silver platter. Uh, but I would say, yeah, God did harden Pharaoh's heart, but it wasn't like he was neutral and wanted to serve God. And he's looking for Moses. Well, let's, let's, let's think about God together. Can we pray together today? And then God's like, oh, no, he's hardening his heart. Oh, I hate Christians. You know, that's not how it happened. He was a sinner just like everybody else, but a particularly bad sinner because of his position. I think that exacerbated his sin. He hardened his heart, purposely hardened his heart. He did not like righteousness. And God said, great, in that path, I'm going to affirm you in that path so I can get this thing done called the 10 plagues and the writing of scripture and the Exodus. I guess we want to look at it historically, but something that endures on is the writing of the text of scripture. So yeah, um, it's a great passage to grapple with. 
And when you say, I've been grappling with it a couple of weeks, well, I've been grappling with it for a long time, and the church has been grappling with the passage for, for decades. And I would say we've got to get to the place where we embrace the fact that God is God and that we are, by default, worthy of exclusion from God's gifts. Not just material gifts, but eternal grace. A uh, book I might recommend, we've had him here before, Tom Schreiner has edited a book called Still Sovereign. It's a compilation of authors. It's in our bookstore, but that'll help you kind of wrestle with that. And back earlier, the prayer question and other things that have, we've touched on, Packer's book, I don't know if I said clearly the title, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, those two books might be a help to kind of work through some of the difficulty of God's sovereign free choices. All right. So in Second Thessalonians, we see that the man of lawlessness is being restrained, and from what I've read, he's being restrained by the Holy Spirit. So does this restraining pertain to unbelievers? Could you please talk about if they're being restrained from being as bad as they could be by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, and, and you're just using the man of lawlessness as by way of example, right? If, if he's being restrained, which there's both a he and an it in that passage, so I think it's the church and he is the spirit, the spirit through the church, but that's a macro illustration of, yeah, you're right. Man of lawlessness is restrained because of God's spirit work within the church and the influence of, of Christians in the world because the spirits that work through them. So um, now the question is, is he restraining evil within the average non-Christian? And I would say yes. Uh, only, uh, I mean, I can think of examples, but the, the ultimate observation would be just like we see plenty of people that are not as bad as they could be, right? We, we think, well, well, how does that happen? Well, the restraint of the Holy Spirit uh, is at work sometimes through very external realities, like Romans 13, the government is there to restrain evil, and some people, because of a conscience, Romans chapter 2, they have a conscience, they don't want punishment either from God or some civil authority, they restrain their behavior. That's the problem with the whole modern approach to letting people just do what they want to do. You, you want everyone to do what's right in their own eyes, we will have the book of Judges, which if you read it, 330 years of horrific things, and we see it on our, on our news feeds all the time. But yes, God's Spirit uh, restrains evil. But I would say most of that restraint either is through the imprint of conscience that is still not seared or calloused enough to be ineffectual, or it's external means that God uses through secular government, law enforcement, judicial system, and the church. Uh, and when the church is gone, I think the man of lawlessness appears, and I do think there's a lot of sin that takes place that wouldn't otherwise take place because the restraining work of the Spirit through the church is out of the way. Does that answer your question? So you're saying he uses, so the church, the government, and the conscience are being utilized by the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit's work of writing the law of God on the conscience of the person, Second Romans chapter 2, um, I mean, that's a work that's, that's complete. That's programming that he's already done. Uh, but the active work of the existence that some of our laws in the California Penal Code still say, you beat your wife, you should go to jail as a felon, those things should make people think twice about doing sinful things other than your conscience tells you you should never do that. So yes, the external work, and that's the work of the Spirit. And I say that because the passage says, do you not know that it doesn't bear the sword for nothing? This is God's right, instrument. He's a minister of God. The governmental sharp sword is the minister of God. So God is connected with the work of the government enforcing law, and that is a restraint. No matter what liberals want to say, right, enforcing the law is a restraint. <laughs> because, you know, 
there's punishment that goes with, with infraction. Um, yeah. Now, is there a question underneath that question? There's a reason you asked that? No, that's good. Okay, Thank okay. You. All right. Thank you. Uh, my question is on bunnies and uh, eggs. <laughs> my issues with Bunnies that. don't lay eggs. <laughs> I don't think. But Jesus referred to, um, you know, he would be in the center of the earth for, for three days, just as Jonah was in the valley of the, of the well for three days. Easter, we understand, I understand that it's a pagan holiday. And when Jesus was uh, crucified, he, he was crucified on the high Sabbath. And with my math, it doesn't calculate that um, he rose on, on, on Easter, which is Sunday. Um, it doesn't calculate three days and three nights. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the way I, I look at it is he was he was resurrected on on Saturday, uh, and yes, he he the tomb was was uh, you know they came to the tomb and it was on early Sunday morning, but the calculation from uh, High Sabbath it, it doesn't you know it can you explain that? Yeah, the High Sabbath was not the Saturday; it was the Friday because it was Passover. And, and, and here's the problem about the three days and three nights. Uh, I, I get that. There's two things, and I've written articles on this, that there are plenty of, of Judaic examples in the Old Testament of that terminology uh, being described. Where Mathematically, you look at the context, you can see we're dealing with when something happens on the third day. This is the Jewish idiomatic way of describing that period of time. So it's not unusual. But then people say, well, I'm a Westerner. I'm not Eastern. I'm not, I'm not Israeli. I want this to be three days and three nights. And then I would go back to the fact that Jesus was crucified on the Passover. The Passover was the culmination of God's plagues of the Old Testament, the, the sacrificial lamb. The, the, the penultimate uh, plague was darkness. Darkness was in the book of Exodus when that plague came, was a darkness as it's put by Moses that could be felt. So it's a dark darkness. And this darkness took place actually at the crucifixion where God says he miraculously brought darkness on the land when Jesus died. So if you want to count darkness as a night, because it certainly was an artificially produced night, you got night, you got day, because that ended when he died. You got night, you got day, you got night, you got day. You got three days and three nights. It's, it's not a, uh, a night of, of, of uh, rotation of the earth, but even in that, I think it works for the Easterner because I've got plenty of Eastern examples, Middle Eastern examples of how that idiom describes, if anything happens on the third day, that's, a, that's, a third, that's three days, uh, which includes day and night in, in their calculation, just like the Sabbath is really starting on Friday. You say, well, the Sabbath is Saturday. No, Saturday, Sa Sabbath starts at sunset on Friday. And you say, well, that doesn't compute. Well, it computes in an Eastern mind. It doesn't compute in a Western mind. And so I'm going to say to the Westerner, as I answer the question, and I have that, I think we have darkness. We've got night, we've got day, we've got night, we've got day, we've got night, we've got day. And, and we've got three days and three nights. Uh, it's just that the first night was one that I think reflected the ninth plague, which was darkness fell over the earth when he died. That's, that's my answer. Yeah, I know there's different views on it. Uh, if you want to, if this is all new to you, like the timing of the resurrection, Harold Honer wrote a book called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, which lays out that view. That's one view, and I get it. It's not new to me. And there are other views, and, and I'm going to buy the view that I think the church has traditionally held because of, I think, good biblical reasons that he died on Friday and was resurrected on Sunday. 
even though I know that, you know, we can be brothers and disagree on that. But, uh, uh, yeah, there are a few views on that. Okay. Um, would the church and the, the leaders of the church be held accountable if, if, if you, there's so many scriptures that say um, over 50 that teach us to, to teach in truth. Would the church, the leaders, be held accountable for, for teaching something that wasn't? The truth about because the day of Christ's crucifixion? Yeah, because crucifixion? Jesus said himself, the only, the only thing this generation, this wicked and evil generation yeah. get, this sign, is that the, the Son of Man will be in the two, in the, in the Sign in the of Jonah. Of the right, but no one he said that, and I would say, listen, we, do, we want truth about that passage. And the passage was, we want a sign, right? We want a sign, we want a sign. And he says, only an evil and unbelieving generation demands a sign. And the only sign you're going to get... This is not a statement about church history or church theology. or theo- This is a statement about you guys are demanding something, which Paul recapitulates in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You should, you should not be wanting God to do a magic trick for you. Uh, that's not what we base our faith on. And he says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign that's inevitable on the prophetic plan, and that is I'm going to die and rise again, which is going to be the ultimate apologetic sign that what I'm telling you is the truth. But if the concern is, listen, the truth, as I define it, in your mind, I would think, is this one thing that I think Christians don't quite get. And if you're talking either about the Sabbath, and I'm not sure what the Acts is, but I'd like to know, are you concerned about the Sabbath as a weekly observance? No, it's just the the the, the, the holiday itself, Easter. Uh, Easter, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. It's, like It's being celebrated in... On the wrong day, in your mind. You think we should celebrate it on Saturday? Not Easter, the resurrection of Christ. okay. Right. So you think we should celebrate the resurrection of Christ on Saturday? To somewhat. Yes. Okay. But, but you say if it's about truth, if that's the truth, right, then every church should be doing that. And are you saying if God is going to punish all the churches that don't celebrate uh, Easter on Saturday, is that what you would recommend? That no. you, but you're asking no, the question, do, you, do I think that? Yeah. No. No. Okay. I don't think that. Um, because I don't think it's right, for one. I would disagree as a student of the Bible. I don't think that's, that's the right answer. And I think Harold Honer's book would help on trying to say, here's all the views about the timing of Christ's death and the timing of Christ's resurrection. There are views that are different. I get that. A lot of it's based on statements like that, the, the sign of Jonah, three days and three nights. Uh, and not, it's not the most extensive treatment of it, but it's a good readable treatment of it. And um, I'm, just, I'm in the view that he presents, and I think he buys it. I don't know. It's pretty objective work, um, is that Christ died on Friday and rose on, on Sunday. So Easter and eggs and, and all of that, whatever. Yeah, I'm not, we don't do that here, but we celebrate the resurrection of Christ on Sunday because I'm convinced. As a matter of fact, another book I might recommend is, um, is Don Carson's book, D.A. Carson's book, From Sabbath to Sunday, which is really talking about a lot of the practices, and it's a compilation of a lot of scholars, but they're dealing with all of this, and ultimately it's predicated on the fact that Jesus rose on Sunday, and they'll make the case in the book. So I would say, if, if I were you, uh, and, and uh, I would be open to the research and the data that may convince you that Christ maybe was resurrected on Sunday. Is that a deal breaker for our fellowship? No. But we, the good news is we have a Saturday uh, Easter service at our church. So come, come to that. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Last question. Last question. All right. Yes, um, some friends were having a conversation about demonic possession. Yeah. And I don't know if that still occurs in this age. Yeah. And also the, the big thing was, can a Christian 
who is sealed with, with the Holy Spirit, um, be possessed. Yeah. What do you mean by possessed? Like the demonic possession where they're, you know, I don't know, spitting out things, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, just, right. you but know. The, yeah, the, the stuff reason that I, Bible describes I, is right. possession. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I'm just trying to get to, to the words. Because here's the thing. The word possession is a word that we use when the word itself that describes these demoniacs is the Greek word daimonidzomai. Daimonidzomai means daemon, the demon, uh, idzomai, is that he is passively acting in the person. So if I ask the question with just a grammatical sense of what these things mean, could a person be a passive instrument of a demon? I'm going to say, yeah. As a matter of fact, I can use some very uh, germane uh, issues in, in church politics when Paul says, to Timothy, hey, there are people in your church that are held captive by Satan to do his will. Well, there's kind of, it's seemingly there, not that they're not willing participants in the sin, but Satan is utilizing instruments in the church to cause problems. So yes, I believe in that. Now, in your mind, that doesn't rise to the exorcist level of head spinning and projectile vomit. Uh, But I would say the dramatic uh, outbreak in Christ's coming and you got to look at it from, from an angelic and demonic perspective. The culmination of all the work of God coming to save humanity, right, to, to save his people, right, is all coming to bear on this thing, right? Christ's incarnation, right? Uh, Luke um, 4, John, uh, Matthew 4, Satan himself is going to be there to try and derail all this, right? The outbreak of demonic work in an ex- extravagant, dramatic way, uh, I get it, uh, I don't think we see that kind of dramatic head spinning, you know, thing as often. Uh, I'm not saying it's absent, but I am saying why you, there was something about the dramatic showing of demonic work uh, in the book of Acts and in, in the Gospels. I'm not saying that it's, it's absent. I'm a, a cessationist when it comes to demonic activity, but I am saying the demonic activity that's most effective usually doesn't include something you'd write, make a movie about. Uh, and, and so all of that's very active. I, I do some lecturing on the work of demons in the world today. Also, PastorMike.com, look up demons. And I, I two or three lectures on what the Bible has to say about how the continuing work of demons work in the world. And I think that um, a lot of it is not going to, you know, Ozzy Osbourne won't be interested in it. Because it's just, you know, it's all the bad stuff that most people shrug their shoulders at. Can a Christian, that was your other question, um, I think a Christian is constantly tempted. He, a Christian is constantly harassed. A Christian is constantly targeted by the enemy, 1 Peter 5. So there's plenty of examples of that. Uh, can they be taken over as a vessel of a demon? I would say no. And, and again, I go to 1 John chapter 5. The greater is he is in you, he's in the world. I think there's something about my relationship with God, the regeneration, the indwelling of the Spirit, uh, to use those analogies that um, probably make that a, a non-possibility. Yeah, great. All right. Stand up and we'll pray together and I'll let you go. Thanks for our time. And my prayer going in with my my team this morning was that we would have something in this morning that would encourage you or or bless you or motivate you. And I pray that 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 happened. And let me just pray for us as we dismiss. God, thanks for this team. Thanks for this group. Thanks for all you're doing in our lives individually that certainly are indicative of some of the questions that surface and uh, we're thankful for the, the challenge of living the Christian life in a non-Christian world. We're, we're grateful for the challenge of just all the passages that you give us, that you tell us that the, um, it's the, the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to, to, to search it out. 
Thank you that you've made us students. We want to be better students, so continue to drive us back to your word to understand it well, that it might govern and guide our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.